Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. Sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker. And folks, on today's show, we are so thrilled to welcome back to the show for the third time, Professor Michael Munger. How's it going, Ron? Good, Ed. Let's get going. Yeah, let's just jump in. We've yep. got so much to talk about. Uh, quick bio, Michael Munger is Professor of Political Science and Director of the PPE Certificate Program at Duke University, where I had a chance to visit, by the way, and um, ask some of the student guides. And I think he's the second most popular person on campus other than Coach K. Just so we're, so we're clear. Um, and a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute of Economic Research. Uh, he, his primary research focuses on the functioning of markets, regulation, and government institutions. And if I read more of the biography, we would go on all day. Welcome back to the Soul of Enterprise, Michael Munger. It is a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. Well, we're so happy to have you. And you just had a, a Wall Street Journal article published, I believe it was yesterday, and in it, you write the following, and prices rise when goods become scarce or the money sp supply expands rapidly. So here's my question, because I think I'm confused about this. I used to think that inflation was the increase in the money supply, and, uh, the, the and, and which then caused the increase to prices. But it seems that people refer to any price rise now as inflation, and that's wrong, right? I'm, I'm not crazy. <laughs> Um, you're, you shouldn't be crazy. You are crazy. I have bad news. Okay. You are in yeah, fact yeah. crazy. <laughs> I am in fact. The, the, it's like measuring a recession. So we have certain means for measuring a recession. And Ronald Reagan had a famous uh, description of that. A recession is when you're unemployed. A depression is when I'm unemployed. <laughs> so it, it's, it's kind of a matter of perception. Inflation should be measured by a sustained general increase in the price level, and that can only be caused by an increase in the money supply. You're right. Okay. However, we measure inflation by looking at the prices of a market basket of products, and we look at it quarter on quarter. So we had more than a year when the economy was really depressed from normal, its normal position because of its normal rate of growth because of COVID. And then we had a bunch of things that blocked the supply chain and meant that there was kind of artificial temporary scarcity. So we measured the increase quarter on quarter. And th th that's the, the hard thing to keep track of. Uh, prices were really low. And then they rose really quickly because of the problems with the supply chain. And everybody was sitting on these big piles of cash because the Fed, the Fed had been blowing up the money supply. It was actually a 40% increase over the last two years, which is astonishing. Just an historic, the, the, I know your listeners know this, but let me say it, my voice rising in incredulity. The Fed has been buying corporate debt. It hasn't been buying treasury bills. It's been buying corporate debt with money that it's printing. What could go wrong? So we, all of these companies are sitting on giant piles of cash. 
we've got a supply chain set of supply chain restrictions where we can't get back fast enough. And a lot of people are saying, you know, my job sucks. I'm not sure I really want to work there again. So already we're having trouble filling existing jobs. If you add on top of that, the new Build Back Better, where we're supposed to be spending literally trillions. I mean, sometimes people say trillions are exaggerating, but this is literally <laughs> trillions of dollars. You have those three things. Let me reiterate. Giant piles of cash, supply chain problems, and a constipated labor market. We're screwed. We're going to see a gigantic increase in the price level. Now, whether that's inflation or not hardly matters at the end of the day. Your question, forgive me, it took a long time to get back to your question. Maybe that's not really inflation, but it's a gigantic increase in the price level that is going to form in people's minds a set of inflation expectations that in the 1980s took us three or four years to wring out. Once people have inflation expectations, it means that any cash they have, they're going to spend because holding cash balances means a net loss of wealth. Yep. And and then our president says, I got an idea. How about we put some price controls in place? It, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> if the problem is price increases, let's control that. The problem, the, the, that's a symptom. That's not a cause. Yeah. The price increase is a symptom of the lunacy in Washington. Yeah. So in your opinion, then, our, our friend Milton Friedman was still correct, right? Inflation always is always and everywhere a, a money money problem with the money supply. I would say that inflation is always, but not everywhere. He wow. uh, Because the fact is that I very confidently in 2011 and 2012, when we saw a 10% per month increase in the money supply, I was on some radio shows and people have pointed out there are still recordings of this, so it's always a mistake to make predictions, especially about the future. I said, we're going to have big inflation within a year, and it didn't happen. So you can have big increases in the money supply and not have inflation. But if there is inflation, then it's an increase in the money supply. And I think we had uh, Deidre McCloskey on, and I think she, she said because the, you know, the dollar isn't inflating relative to other currencies, and that because it's really a global supply now, it's not ju- it's not just country by country. And I guess that's a factor, but it's 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 sort of like um, the the uh, uh, Hemingway's definition of of bankruptcy. How did it happen? Well, slowly at first, then all of a sudden, <laughs> are, 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 are we are we are we involved in that situation from an inflationary standpoint? It's going to be slowly at first, then all of a sudden? Well, as long as the only other real candidate for a global currency is the euro, and it's still covered in Greece and Spain and Italy and all the other countries that cannot be relied on to have a fiscal policy. So given the two choices, people are going to hold dollar-denominated assets. But the tipping point, if it occurs, will be catastrophic. So that's right. It happens slowly at first and then all of a sudden. And so The United States is in a uniquely powerful position because we can exploit the fact that we have a global currency at a time that the global economy is so large. I think your listeners know this, but less than 10% of US dollars are in the form of cash. Almost all of it is electronic. Almost all of that is actually created by banks and credit cards. So if I have a line of credit, that's not money. But if I borrow against that line of credit, now that's money which means that the Fed has completely lost control of the rate of increase of the money supply. 
On the other hand, dollars, the actual cash dollars that I learned the other day, there's more $100 bills than $1 bills in the world. And the reason is that people never get rid of $100 bills. They're trading in other countries as an alternative to illiquid currencies that nobody wants to hold. So rich people have big piles of $100 bills because that's one way that you can actually hold on to liquidity. If we start to have inflation, all of that money is going to be translated into something else. People want to hold liquid assets where they're earning some positive rate of return. If the rate of return goes negative, they'll pick an alternative asset that has a smaller negative return, which means that the, there could be a gigantic increase from the sidelines, just sort of unexpected, because we're not thinking of these enormous pools of cash that will come flooding out if there's inflation, because you're not going to hold a dollar if you're losing 6% a year on the value. Yeah, I'm actually- and We're almost at 6% now. Now, right. Right. No, I, I, my wife and I were going don't do this the other day. I'm going to take out a loan and redo my upstairs because I might as well do that at 2% or 3% that I can get right now and yeah. pay it off with the, the But that's inflation later. expectations. That is spend yeah. it all now because it'll be worth less in six months. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So, is there is there a chance here that for for the some of the crypto assets to to step in or do you think that that's just still too far off the radar for anyone? problem with cryptocurrency is that people have two motives for holding cash. One is speculative and the other is transactions. The transactions motivation for holding crypto is not sufficiently good. I can't be sure enough now that the volatility of cryptocurrencies will insulate me. So you, you might hold part of your portfolio of cash in that way. But I think people are going to buy real estate or upstairs renovations. <laughs> Uh, there, there you go. <laughs> so the, the, the classes are long on, on upstairs that's, renovation. That's right. Sample size of one, but you know. It's <laughs> um, so I, I guess related to this is, um, and let me ask it this way. So what, what's your take on, on modern monetary theory and why is it a sign of a deranged mind? Well, <laughs> I, I have some admiration for uh, modern monetary theory. I actually went to graduate school with one of the people who is now one of the chief proponents of modern monetary theory. And I think like any elaborate, clever con game, you have to feel some admiration for it because the, the set of things that you would have to believe for this to be true are rather astonishing. Basically, the claim of modern monetary theory for li listeners that don't know is that we really don't need to worry about deficits. All we need to do is uh, we can increase the money supply in order to pay off debt, which means that we can run large annual deficits so long as inflation does not become a problem. That's the basic summary of modern monetary theory. Well, I suppose that's true as far as it goes, but I've long made an argument that U.S. policy is daft, D-A-F-T. I actually used to write for Rush Limbaugh, and he used, to, he used that a couple of times. Deficits are future taxes. Deficits are future taxes. Now, there's no way around that, except if you print money, that means you're still pushing the future taxes farther off into the future. As long as people will loan us money, that's great. But modern monetary theory, the problem with it is once we start to see inflation, we no longer have any alternative because the inflation is going to increase the interest rate on bonds, which means that we will actually be unable to repay our debt. 
So modern monetary theory says we're going to keep blowing up the balloon. Once it pops, you actually can't put the balloon back together. You can't blow, you can't glue back together a popped balloon. So modern monetary theory is a perfect way of thinking about a justification for progressives to spend money without any sort of restriction. But it's going to be a terrible idea. And then people are going to say, why didn't somebody tell us? <laughs> well, that thank you. That's a great explanation. We are already up against our first break. Want to remind you, you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash TSOE, has sponsors now. One of them is Blake Oliver at Earmark CPA. You can listen to his work at earmarkcpe.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for us at keyword voice America. Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcast and download... Oh, oh my, my fraud. fraud. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with the, for the third time with uh, Professor Michael Munger, and and Mike, uh, you're talking inflation with 
with Ed, and I was just wondering, Paul Krugman, I've got quotes here from May through November saying, oh, this is not a problem, it's a blip. And all of a sudden, I think it was today or yesterday, he said, well, this current bout of inflation came on pretty suddenly. <laughs> I said, yeah, if you're a reader of Paul Krugman, you were told for six months not to not to worry about it. I, I have a lot of admiration for Paul Krugman. If you look at his work in the 80s and 90s, he totally deserved the Nobel Prize. So I've, I'm, he's one of my favorite Great. economists. He said a bunch of smart things about rent control. And then he just decided that he was going to sell out and be a public intellectual. So my favorite example of the kind of hypocrisy you're talking about was all through the Obama administration, he was saying deficits are not a problem. And then January of 2017, on the day before Trump was inaugurated, he said, now I think deficits will be a problem. Problem. Yep. Especially if they cut taxes the way they did. <laughs> uh, what? Let, let's change to the scapegoats. You know, when inflation pops up or price rises, every, there's always a culprit, right? It's it's the Arab sheiks. It's greedy. Well, Elizabeth Warden Warren says it's isn't simply some inevitable economic force of nature. It's greed. Yeah. She right. Um. Let's let's examine that claim. So we had a big increase in prices. Did we have a big increase in greed? Because did, I, I didn't hear her saying that a year ago was a halcyon period of altruism. That doesn't seem to me to be her impression. So if we let's grant her claim, it's pretty hard to say that there was a big increase in greed. What probably happened was the combination of the three things that we talked about before. Huge increase in cash balances, uh, a, a sclerotic uh, supply chain, and difficulties with the labor market. It's easy to explain. And people are greedy under any system. People were greedy in the Soviet Union. The advantage of capitalism is it gives us a mechanism to control greed and to use it to our advantage. So the idea that greed is a cause of these pathologies is just nonsense. It's like blaming airplane crashes on gravity, right? I mean, greed's it's a constant. It's absolutely true. Without that darn gravity, it would be much easier for planes to stay in the air. Yeah, how can you blame change on a constant? Well, but um, planes are designed to solve the problem of gravity, and gravity. in fact, most of the time they do. So blaming gravity for the crash is certainly a mistake. That's a good analogy. This also made me think of something else that you wrote in your book from 2019, Is Capitalism Sustainable? You know, this whole debate about increasing profits and these price rises. You said you challenged the dogma that profits are theft. And, and you pointed out, and I thought this was such a great point, North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela found profit not all that costly after all. In other words, you said profit is a big flashing sign saying, do more of this. <laughs> and it's only 10% of national income, I think, or roughly, you probably know the number, but it's vital in allocating the other 90% of resources, isn't it? Ron, you're underestimating it in an important way. The, the reason, the explanation for capitalism, as I talk about in the book, and I know you know this, is not the value of the production in terms of the price. It's the value of the production that consumers receive over and above the price they have to pay. Now, economists have a boring name for that consumer surplus. But if I'm thirsty and I buy a bottle of water for a dollar, is the value of that water a dollar? No, it's the $20 that I would have paid for that water. So if you look at the amount of consumer surplus that is created by a dynamic capitalist system that serves consumers, profits are a drop in the bucket. It's a little signal saying, do more of this. That's true. 
But the real argument for capitalism is consumer surplus. And people have done estimates of this. Profit's less than 1% of the consumer surplus that's being created by the system. It's just really hard to measure that because you're talking about the difference between what people would pay and what they have to pay. Right. 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 And I know that uh, famous statistic from Doug, is it Douglas North, 2% goes to the entrepreneur of the total value that they created. Um, but I meant Mike more in terms of, you know, how Bernie Sanders said, Oh, there's 20 types of deodorant and there's so much waste and inefficiency and redundancy in capitalism because of the profit. And yet when you look at systems without profit, it, <laughs> it makes your point beautifully. Well, and that was the, the, I, you're right. I, I zeroed in on one small point because I, that is my personal thing that I get upset about is the measurement problem. But if you look at the dynamic as opposed to just the static consequences of measurement, what's interesting about capitalism is that it looks wasteful because you get creative destruction. You get the replacement of one product by another. But that means two things. One, it means that nobody has sufficient market power really to try to exploit the fact that, as they did in the socialist system, really, you don't like our party? Well, you don't have a job anymore. In a capitalist system, you can find another position. But the other thing is that we're constantly creating new ways to create consumer surplus. So the, it does look wasteful. And in fact, a lot of resources get thrown away. But mostly new resources are created and they're channeled to higher valued uses. And so if you compare them, I visited Cuba, I haven't been to North Korea, there's not a single country ever that has solved the problem of poverty using socialism. Not one. Every country that has solved the problem of poverty has turned to capitalism. And you can, there's a perfect natural experiment. You can see China, socialist, socialist, socialist. 1973, they turned to capitalism and they take off. Deirdre McCluskey probably talked about this. The poverty rate in China has fallen from 80% to 10%. It's the greatest achievement ever in the enrichment of a, literally over a billion human beings. So that really is the achievement of capitalism. And it's not an argument. There's no alternative. There's no alternative. Socialism is not a viable alternative if you care about poverty. Socialism is a great alternative if you care about wealth. We can reduce inequality by killing all the rich people. That will totally work. But if you care about poverty, if you honestly care about poor people, you are a capitalist. Yep. That's a wonderful point. You know, you talk about the supply chain a little bit with all the problems. And uh, you probably saw this because I know you, you're, you're one of your uh, expertise is, is regulation. But the Joint Economic Committee just issued a report on the supply chain with some proposed solutions that some in Congress are picking up on, you know, the chassis types on trucks and container stacking rules at these ports and whatnot and automation and all that. But I want to ask you, Mike, about the Jones Act and an act I've never heard of, the Foreign Dredge Act. 40% of American imports come through one port in Sandra, San Pedro Bay, I believe it is. We haven't built a port in decades Part of it is blamed on this dredge act, this foreign dredge act. What do you think? Mike Lee has introduced legislation to repeal both of these acts, Jones and dredge. I, I actually talked to Mike Lee about this and he, when he did research on it, he was just shaking his head. The Jones act, a few people know about the Jones act said that in order to buy something, it has to be shipped on a U.S. bottom on a U.S. ship. And that's a protectionist measure to try to give U.S. workers additional income. But there aren't any. 
There, there, we basically don't have any of those. So it means that in a period of shortage, it's very difficult for us to increase the amount of stuff that's being brought in. But the, the, the dredge act, the problem of ports, we have, uh, when container ships first came in, I'm trying to think this, is the, I'm trying to shorten the story. When container ships first came in, New York was a giant port. The New York longshoremen did not want containers because that took fewer workers. You used a crane, but it increased by a factor of five the amount of cargo that you could get on. So instead of taking three days to offload a ship, you could do it in three or four hours. Well, New York stood firm. We're not going to allow this. We're going to protect our workers. Okay, welcome New Jersey. And so now the New Jersey port is where the New York is not a port anymore. Los Angeles and San Francisco competed well, with to be a port, San Francisco said, we're, we, we want to protect our workers. Okay, San Diego. Now that's where all of this, all, all of this comes in. But still, the, the ports are not big enough and they're not deep enough. The new super container ships, they, they, they're lined up in relatively small channels. So without being able to dredge, without being able to use U.S. dredges, which we can't, we're not making ships either. Right. So we don't have enough dredges, we don't have enough ships, and we don't have enough ports. And there are laws that prevent us from building any of those things. The idea is we want to protect labor. But in fact, no, none of our workers are working in those industries anyway, because those ports are all closed. Are you optimistic that we'll ever get rid of the Jones Act and this Dredge Act? The, the Jones Act, I don't understand. The Dredge Act, I think, is too narrowly protective of a couple of ports that are doing okay. But the, we don't make any ships. The Jones Act isn't protecting anyone. Surely we can get rid of the Jones Act. But like I said, I, I, I did get to talk to Mike Lee about it. Uh, he's not that optimistic. Wow, that's not good. I mean, if we're going to dredge, let's give them spoons, like Milton Friedman says, if the point jobs. is jobs. Right. If, if, yeah. Big ass straws. <laughs> Um, I had to ask you this, Mike, because we meant to talk to you about it on one of your previous visits, but you worked at the FTC, I think on antitrust policy. Why are you bringing up old stuff? I I know, but this is, this is, you know, we're huge fans of Thomas Hazlett. We've had him on, we talked about his book, The Political Spectrum. And I, I, you know, I know that Thomas Sowell converted from Marxism after an internship at the Department of Labor one summer. What did the FTC do to you? I was already on the dark side. Um, I actually got that job through Murray Wiedenbaum, who had been the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors for Reagan. So um, I had been his research assistant. I had trouble finding an academic job, and Murray said he thought that would be interesting. So I worked with Tim Muras. I worked with um, Wendy Graham, Phil Graham's wife, and Jim Miller, who at the, that was before he moved to budget in the Reagan administration. So I actually, the Working at the Federal Trade Commission solidified a number of the beliefs that I already had that having the government be in charge of antitrust and consumer protection is like giving cigarettes, alcohol, and car keys to teenage boys. <laughs> PJ, yeah. Um, and I have to ask you this, too, because you, you, you pointed this out to us last time you were on in October of 2020. You were running for the North Carolina General Assembly, District 34. What happened? Well, I didn't win. I got 4%. Um, I signed up uh, when there was no Republican candidate, just a Democratic incumbent. So I was hoping to get 30% and then a Republican signed up. But I'm running again this coming year. Oh, so right in, in 2022, I will run again. It turns out it doesn't cost very much to lose. 
I wish I could vote for you. Mike, that would give me seven. We, <laughs> we, uh, we have less than a minute, but real quick, are you in favor of ranked choice voting? We could do worse. Ranked choice voting requires a lot of information from voters. On the other hand, voters might pay more attention. And if there were third parties or there were outside parties or candidates that could enliven the debate, it might even work. So with some reservations, yes. Awesome. Well, Mike, this has been great. Unfortunately, we're up against our break. And folks, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out our new sponsor, File. Uh, they do expense reporting in the cloud. Check them out at fylehq.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise and it's like an early christmas has arrived for ron and i we were talking to professor michael munger and i michael i want to ask you about something that i just read today this is uh, from an article uh, from a, um, a a colleague yet competitor of yours, I guess, from American en- uh, Enterprise Institute, Sally Sattel, uh, who's a, a psychologist. And this is a, an article that she's w- writing about uh, what's happening to her profession. But this is from the American Medical Association uh, paper called Advancing Health Equity, A Guide to Language. Hold on. You'll see the connection in a second. You're this making this can- up. No, this guide condemns several dominant narratives in medicine. One of them is the narrative of individualism. 
<laughs> and it's misbegotten corollary, the notion that health is personal responsibility. This is a more equitable narrative, the guide instructs. This is now quoting, expose the political roots underlying apparently natural economic arrangements such as property rights, market conditions, <laughs> gentrification, oligopolies, and low wage rates. The dominant narratives, say the AMA, create harm undermining pu public health and the advancement of health equity. They must be named, disrupted, and, and corrected. Uh, this is a sort of like you and your fellow economists getting getting together and deciding what the cause of cancer is. Is this? <laughs> I'm I'm going to go out on a limb and say that my fellow economists and I know more about cancer than the AMA knows about economics. And we don't know much. I'll admit we don't know much. Um, it, it is remarkable that if well, suppose the economists might say AMA what you should do is a bunch of intrusive surgeries because people's bodies are not capable of healing themselves. So anything that's wrong with someone, you should go in and do surgery. Well, they'd say, oh no, actually the body has substantial recuperative powers. But you know, if I give a vaccine to you, it doesn't mean that your wife is immune. We actually have to give the vaccine to her also. So that sort of notion of individualism is probably pretty important. It doesn't go across. In economics, growth emerges as the consequence of individual action. It is not a product of top-down planning. And it really surprises me. I bet a lot of those, the doctors are atheists. They absolutely believe in evolution. They don't believe in top-down planning in biology. They all think that the world was created by this decentralized evolutionary process that produced species. But the economy... That has to be top-down planning. They can't imagine that the sort of Hayekian process that produces emergent order and produces profits and firms and good, uh, good products, that that could be done on its own. So I, I had not seen that quote, I'm going to have nightmares. <laughs> it, really, it just is unbelievable to me that they would be, why are they weighing in on all of this? And everything is, this, this woke nonsense is just out of control. Well, it's woke, but it's not nonsense. If you can use the medicalization of almost every aspect of life to increase your power to order other people around, we're on the verge of something like China's cultural revolution. Because this is an entering wedge and to be able to be a, a nanny state busybody, to be able to control almost all the aspects of people's lives. And it's for their own damn good because they don't know enough to do it on their own. Yeah. And I just hate America. The other side of this is, is last night I read a piece in the, in the Atlantic, not exactly right-leaning or libertarian-leading, that said, hey, you know, this mask, these mask mandates in school maybe weren't the best idea. Like, oh, my gosh, if they're losing the Atlantic, <laughs> the, the panic has got to be settling in. <laughs> that it, it is an interesting question about, I think, a lot of people who are sort of centrist and they feel a little bit betrayed now for having watch the medical establishment use the accumulated goodwill that we all had because they were experts. We will defer. Well, and then it changes, then it turns out it was never true, and then it didn't really work. And so regardless of what you think of the merits, the fact that they are dissipating the goodwill that, that we, we're, we want to trust experts, and that actually is in their domain. They should be able to say about masks and public health, but it, it, has, it has been a disaster. Well, this the one thing that the the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, by the way, everybody used to leave, leaves off the P. They, you know, they, they obviously didn't <laughs> like that, that was the the one thing they're responsible for. Because if I recalled two, well, before COVID, 
the one of the things that happened maybe 18 months or so was this we need to reclassify uh, guns as a disease yeah like maybe you should have been paying attention to actual diseases the, it is a difficult problem because a lot of injuries are caused by guns and if you think that you should control every aspect of the risks of people's lives that is an area that's underregulated in their view yeah yeah I want to uh, take you back to September of uh, 2021, an article that uh, I read in AIER, um, Nuts and Schmerz. Tell us what Nuts and Schmerz is. <laughs> German is a very flexible language, and I, I like a lot of German words. There's one German word that's my favorite, Backpfeifengeschicht. Backpfeifengeschicht is a face that wants to be punched. And so you can, you can just see, you're, you're going to use this word twice in the next week. You just see some guy and say, oh, that's Backpfeifengeschicht. That dude, he needs to be punched. Nutzenschmerz is sort of the opposite of schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is I take joy in the deserved harm to someone else. They had it coming. Nutzenschmerz is when somebody gets a benefit that I think they don't deserve and it pisses me off. Now, we used to have a name for this when the world was sensible. It was a sin called envy. But we've now dressed it up in silk clothes and put it on a pedestal, and we call it social justice. So if someone else gets a benefit that I think is undeserved, we will spend a lot of resources to make sure that they don't get to keep it. Now, one of the problems with the capitalist system, and I'll be the first to admit this, is that many people who make a lot of money on something lucky or because they come up with some silly product that people buy, it's not maybe in some moral sense deserved. However, we've created a system where they're legally entitled to those profits because we want to encourage people to go out and make products that produce the consumer surplus we were talking about before. Those are the rules. You're entitled to it. Nutzenschmerz is this idea, well, they're actually not entitled to it. And after the fact, we're going to look at all of these big drug companies. And so we asked them to create a vaccine. But now they're making money. Damn it. We've got to take that back. That's undeserved. Well, we really needed that. And the fact that they were able to produce so much vaccine in such a short time, they're entitled to those profits. They are 100% legally entitled to those profits. And if you say we're going to claw them back because it was undeserved, next time you're going to be sorry. Let, let's hope. Uh, we had uh, Ronald Bailey on uh, earlier this year, and he, he, he said that the, the technology that we have put together with regard to mRNA might, might lead us to that this might be the last pandemic if, and this was his qualifier, the FDA gets out of the way. Because yes. I, I'm sure you read this, the, the vaccine, uh, the Moderna, was developed 48 hours after yeah. they sequenced the, the, the genome. We, Holy cow. We had a vaccine before the CDC had a working test to detect the virus because the CDC took nearly six weeks. Korea had one in two weeks. Germany had one in two weeks. The CDC had a test that didn't work and then they couldn't distribute it. So we had a vaccine before we had a working test. This is the thing. I think last time you were on, I got you really riled up. This is the, the biggest thing that riles me up. This whole thing about the, 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 the CDC and the FDA getting in the way of making people healthy. Uh, as uh, you know, our fellow libertarian, um, uh, Mary um, Ruart, is, is fond of saying, the FDA has killed a lot of people. It's really, really angering to me. Well, in, 
Right now, I, my pet peeve about the FDA is holding up the rapid tests. They're standard for rapid, because all over the world, you can buy U.S.-made rapid tests. You cannot buy rapid tests in the U.S. Now, they're only 90 or 91% effective. But if I'm going to go to grandma's house over Christmas, I'd like 90%. That's pretty good compared to, gee, I'm going to flip a coin or you have one of those magic eight balls. And it says it is not clear. <laughs> well, and it's it's 91% effective, but that which means it's 9% ineffective. Unless, of course, you double it, which is case it's it's nine percent of nine percent. You, you take multiple two. versions of the tests, and the, if that were available widely for free or cheaply, that would make an enormous difference. Now, the difference is, and I think this is an ideological. The problem is that people would be using it individually. We want you to have to go to a doctor and to become part of the medical system, not to be able to make these judgments on your own. That's right. Where they can talk to you about social justice, and you know. <laughs> We've weave those things back into it. Well, uh, I wanted to ask you one question as I was preparing for uh, our show today, and we've got about uh, two minutes left together. I've, I, I, I found a hidden gem, um, and that is a course that is online that you uh, are, are offering through through Duke on capitalism and political economy. So uh, tell me, tell us a little bit about that course. I want everybody to take this over the holidays. So t tell us about this little course. Well, thousands of people have taken it, and it's easy enough to find. I mean, if you can put the link up, that would be a yep. help. Greg, Greg um, is tweeting it as we speak. <laughs> so this, this was a course that I had taught a couple of times, and I started out as a seminar, and I ended up having a waiting list of 50 people. So uh, the, I, I started teaching the course to 150, and it struck me that this was actually not very time sensitive. And so we got some money from the Thomas W. Smith Foundation. We put the course together. I have the reading list online. You can't take it for credit, but thousands of people have watched some of these videos. And I think that in terms of an introduction, I try to be fair-minded. I obviously have a perspective, but I would encourage people to read this, to, sorry, to watch this on YouTube, because you'll get a little bit of an idea of the way that public choice people think about government. You may not agree, but it will change the way that you think. Yeah, no, I can't. I'm looking forward to it, and I'm and I'm really ticked at my brother because as he works, he probably did the sound for you on this and didn't tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, given the stuff he says about you, I'm not surprised. <laughs> well, I'm glad go. those charges were dropped. <laughs> Very well played. Well, up against our last break, I want to remind you folks that you can contact Ron or me by sending that email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Website is the soul of enterprise for show notes, previous shows, uh, and also reminder about that Patreon channel. Become a sponsor of ours at patreon.com TSOE, or maybe create one as a Christmas gift for one of your friends and relatives. We'd love to have you as a part of our community. But right now, a final word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create 
package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download... Oh, Oh my fraud. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with our third interview with Michael Munger. And Mike, you wrote a book this year or published a book this year, The Sharing Economy, Its Pitfalls and Promises. And you say in there, the platform revolution is an economic revolution as momentous as the Neolithic and industrial revolutions. But I've heard that we've already picked all the low-hanging fruit and growth is going to be in the systemic decline. So how can you how can you talk me off the ledge about that? You may remember that Lord Kelvin in the 1890s, the famous British scientist, announced that they could close the British patent office because everything had been invented. And he was a really smart guy, just that he could not imagine that we would create new stuff. Um, I am not deterred by the fact that I cannot imagine that we will create new stuff. What I see is a set of circumstances that are leading to the ability of others. I have a rule that if I think of it, some entrepreneur thought of it five years ago. And so I, I have a bunch of really great ideas to make profit. And every time I look, I find that someone else has already done it. So an example that I sometimes use, that book about platforms would say that platforms are a way of enabling two-sided markets. So somebody who has something and somebody who needs something, if those two people can get together, then the platform takes a little bit of a cut, but mostly it's just two people cooperating out in the world. So it's not me making something and trying to sell it to you. We have enough stuff if we can just make better use of it. So the simplest example 
is, and I think we're almost there. We're not quite, but we're almost there. I go to the airport and I park my car and I pay for it to stay there for four nights. 200 yards away, there's another big parking lot that says Hertz. And they rent cars to people who fly in who need to drive. Why don't I rent my car out to people who fly in instead of paying to park? Because if we could combine those two things, they're really are, they're directly adjacent to each other. If I had a way to rent out my car instead of paying to park it, I would actually take $5 a day instead of paying $35 a day to park it. And somebody would be happy to rent the car for $5 a day. Now you say there's a bunch of problems about insurance. Uh, I can't, we can't rely on the fact you won't wreck my car. It's going to take some changes. Cars will have to have something like a black box in an airplane so that I can attribute damage. If you harmed it, you're going to have to pay. You're going to have to post bond. You, maybe you have reviews or insurance like in Airbnb. But think of if we can commodify excess capacity. We store so much stuff. If we can commodify excess capacity, that's what sharing is. And that's what platforms do. So the world is going to be dominated by platforms. In, we're, getting a lot, we're going to need a lot less stuff, which means that people who now make stuff will not have traditional jobs. We're going to see the disappearance of traditional jobs. And that's why I think it's going to be as wrenching as the Industrial Revolution. The first 50 years of the Industrial Revolution, the cities of Europe were on fire. Our cities may be on fire also because people are going to be unhappy with this wrenching change about their expectations of having jobs without a college degree or the ability to write computer programs. Right. And I it just, you know, and you did this in Tomorrow 3.0 too, where you, you talk about transaction costs. And that's just such a great lens to analyze, I think, what's going on out there right now with everything. So that, that was really an eye opener. Um, Ed had mentioned Ronald Bailey and we had him on and, and I ask almost every economist I get to talk to about this. Are you worried about peak population that, you know, the UN demographers are saying that population worldwide is going to start to decline. I mean, do we have good economic models? What happens with a declining population worldwide? Cause it's never happened. I actually tweeted today about the fact that the world is grossly underpopulated. And what has happened in country after country, and I think this is understandable, I'm not opposed to it, but when women become educated to the point that the opportunity cost of their labor is high enough that just having many children is not, doesn't make economic sense. So capitalism has solved the problem of overpopulation by increasing the value of women, by, by letting women take their place in at the economic table where they're actually productive citizens. So the result is in country after country, you see a leveling off of the rate of growth of population and then constant and then below replacement, birth rates below replacement in most of the developed nations. The result is we don't have a very good model. Japan is right up against it. In the next 10 years, we're gonna see what happens to a developed nation that has a strongly negative rate of population growth. And I, I expect they're going to have terrible problems. You can't have a welfare state where there's only two people working for every retired person. Ronald Bailey's not worried about it. And why? Because he thinks technology will allow people to collaborate on a worldwide level and, and still have, you know, profound economic growth. 
And I just, you know, the future belongs to those who show up for crying out loud. <laughs> I think that we are going to find that communities of meaning can be created online for alternatives to jobs. I think that's possible. I think that the decline in price that results from sharing rather than buying may mean that it's not necessary to have a 40 hour a week job because prices are going to collapse. If you can rent and share the, the amount of wealth that we have, uh, instead of paying to store it, that's going to increase dramatically. I do think that the people of the, at the bottom of the economic food chain are going to have a lot of trouble because it doesn't matter how low prices are if your salary is zero. So I think that, I guess my concern, Ron doesn't, one thinks in scientific terms. I'm a political scientist. It is easy to imagine a demagogue of the left or the right appealing to citizens and saying, you have been denied something and you know, fill in the blank, Jews, black people, white people, somebody is to blame. Vote for me and I will restore justice. So my worries are political. Right, right. Um... Mike, when we let China into the WTO, I think under Clinton, we thought that they would become more like us. And a lot of people are saying we're becoming more like China, given our suspe you know, suspension of free speech, not doing anything about Hong Kong. Who knows what's going to happen in Taiwan? Look at the NBA, Disney self-censoring, Nike. You know, are we becoming more like China? I mean, Ed and I are rabid free traders. So it's not like I want tariffs or a war with China, but... Are you concerned about what's going on there? Well, we are becoming more like China, and you may be the last two free traders around, and I'm not sure about Ed. <laughs> In fairness, um, a lot of people on the right, young people on the right, have completely just gotten off the liberalism and globalism boats. They are for national strength, and the way to have national strength is, in fact, Let's be, let's be fair. If we say that the argument for free trade is unilateral, if we get rid of trade barriers, it's good for our consumers. Well, suppose that it's a war. Suppose that it's not voluntary exchange and cooperation. Suppose it's a war. So 1944, June 5th, we talked to President to General Eisenhower and say, you know, if we invade Normandy tomorrow, we're going to take losses. We shouldn't do it. And he said, are you crazy? We're going to inflict greater losses on the enemy. That's the point. Of course, we're going to take losses. Well, if you are a new nationalism, young conservative, yes, it's going to hurt our consumers to cut off free trade, but it's going to hurt China more, and we are in a war. And so war on China requires that we harm them. And that's how trade wars get started, and we could see a gigantic decrease in prosperity. Now, the United States can probably survive. We're a large enough market but it would destroy the economies of all these smaller countries that depend on access to global trade. So we could be on the verge of just changing into a smoking ruin on world trade, a dramatic decline in the GDP of many countries that now depend on the globalist system because we're at war with China. We're in soft, cold war with China. I think a lot of people on the right already believe that. Not the left, the left also. Bernie Sanders also wants to cut off free trade. Right, for right. the first time now, the right wants it. Do, do you think we should defend Taiwan? We've only got about a half minute, so even less, actually. Just real quick. We should try to defend Taiwan's right to self-determination. 
we need to think whether we're really willing to go to war about that or not. Because if we're not, we can lose a lot of credibility if we say we are, China invades, and we say, well, damn, like we did with Afghanistan, frankly. Right. Well, Mike, thank you so much. This is such an honor to have you back on. Hopefully you'll come back and uh, we'll, try and, we'll try and catch up with Russ. Ed, <laughs> what do we have next week? Ron, uh, next week we uh, heard that there's going to be an audit in the North Pole, and we're trying to get our microphones in for the audit of Santa's operation. So that's what we're gonna that's what we're gonna be talking about next week. All right, I'll see you in the 167 hours. All right. This has been the Soul of Enterprise: Business in the Knowledge Economy. Sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Christmas Eve. That's noon Pacific. In the meantime, please visit us on the web at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.